We're still trying to figure out exactly how to set things up. It's a little more work on the front end right now. It won't be forever. But uh, if for no other reason, the fact that I can hear y'all's voices in the room, uh, I am grateful to be in this space. Uh, I missed hearing uh, all of your voices. Um, we are in actually in the Gospel of Luke tonight. Now, normally, what we've done in the past is we've read a psalm, and then uh, whatever passage I was preaching on, you'd hear from the reader earlier, and then I would cover it again. And, you know, that, we, there's no reason to do that. We could listen to more, to more scriptures than that. So uh, tonight you heard two different Old Testament passages. The second one kind of has to do with what we're talking about. And then uh, I'll read the gospel text uh, if that's what we're preaching from uh, at the beginning of the service. And there's actually something that um, at University Baptist, a little call and response that they do um, that's a little different than the way I've heard it before, and I really like it. And, and when you end the gospel passage... Um, what the, the call and response they have is uh, the leader or a person who reads it would say, the word of God in scripture for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. And everyone says, thanks be to God. And I, I think I'd like to start implementing that. I just kind of like that, that little meditative moment. So uh, thanks be to God is, is, is y'all's part. It's one line. It's pretty easy. Kind of like I do in a wedding. You, you, like I, I'm the one that can mess everything up. You guys can do it. So when the time comes, that's the, that's the response for for that. We don't have it on the screen or anything, but you, you guys can read, you can remember that, I think. So, um, We are in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, and it says this, someone in the crowd said to him, that's Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be when whoever stores up things, for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Well, tonight, uh, I want to, you know, I look, took a look at the budget, and I want to talk to you about how God will kill you if you don't give. And that's clearly what scripture is talking about now. No, this, this is one of those clobber verses, right? This is one of those ones that you save for like the giving Sunday where you're trying to get the budget back on track and so you just make everyone feel terrible and they have to empty their pockets. And I, I absolutely plan on doing that tonight. Um, now, uh, this, is, this is such a, I, I think this is such a great story and in, uh, in in kind of a funny to me uh, encounter because for the second time in three weeks in these lectionary passages, someone comes to Christ and asks him to settle a sibling dispute. Right? You remember a couple weeks ago, there was an anxious and disquieted Martha who was running around trying to keep everything going when everyone else was sitting and listening to Jesus, including her sister Mary. And anxious and disquieted Martha wants Jesus to make sure that her sister is equally as unsettled as she is. And you know, of course, the first sign that you could use a little peace in your life is when someone else's serenity feels like a personal affront to you. Right? We've all been there. Why aren't you as upset as I am right now. The goal is not for me to be less upset, but for you to be more. 
course, that's none of Jesus' business. He didn't really want to settle that argument either, although he did pretty quickly. And now we have what we can assume is a younger brother demanding that Jesus supersede what is very normal, understood, established law in that time and place. Right? In, in this time, in this culture, an oldest son would get a larger percentage of the state, estate than the younger brother. And we can assume this is the younger brother because he wants it split. And assuming there's just two sons, based on the language here, we don't know for sure, but the split would be two-thirds for the older, one-third for the younger, so twice as much for the older son. And that one-third is simply not acceptable to this younger brother, and it shouldn't be acceptable to anyone with an earshot, right? After all, he did all the work. He did so much work being, you know, born. He deserves it. It is only noble, it is only just to call everyone's attention, including the Lord of the universe, to this great injustice that has been enacted upon him. And Jesus, of course, wants nothing to do with relitigating current property laws. That's not really what he's here for. And so he answers this request or demand the same way he answers most questions, with a story. And the story is of a rich man, a man who has a banner year with his crops. His barns are full and there's still some more to put away. What do you do? And uh, apparently you can be rich without being smart because his uh, answer is, I know what the obvious answer is. I've got more stuff than I know what to do with. I've got barns that won't fit all the crops. So what I'll do is build some new barns. No, I'm going to tear down the old barns, then build some bigger ones. Again, I don't know why you have to tear down the old ones. I don't know why you can't just build some bigger ones or, I don't know, maybe even give away the grain. But regardless, this is his solution to it. And he does it because he's going to sit back and be on easy street later on. Eat, drink, and be merry. Although apparently he's already rich, so I don't know why he can't do that now. He might have enough to hang out for years, just being all merry by himself. Now clearly, Jesus tells a story, and when we hear it, we read it as a rebuke of the brother who demands that Jesus um, would, you know, give, help his, make his brother give him half. But I often wonder if the guy who came to Jesus actually heard it that way. Because we don't hear his reaction. We don't hear if he's upset or angry or any of those things. We don't see his reaction. But as convinced as he seemed to be about his brother's villainy, <laughs> I wonder if he heard the story and cast his greedy older brother as the bad guy in that story. I wonder if he heard the story and went, yeah, Jesus, you're right. My brother shouldn't be like that, right? After all, that's the danger of any of Jesus' story or any story. We can interpret it however we want, right? And conviction is in the ear of the beholder. Uh, I have preached, and every preacher I know has had the situation. I have preached unambiguous sermons on turning the other cheek. And after the sermon, had someone come up to me and say, thank you. Brother Dixon, you have, you, I heard you. That really meant a lot to me. And you're right. I am going to go to work and tell my coworker everything I think about them and how terrible they are, and I'm going to let them have it. And I'll say, no. That's not at all what I said. It's the opposite of what I said, right? But we hear what we want to hear sometimes. But tonight, I want to challenge us to not do that. I want to challenge us to stand in front of this teaching and not be its casting director. Don't put other people in the roles, right? The easy thing to do with a story about money or greed is to cast around for the worst offenders, people who are around you or who you know of that are worse than you, that have done worse than you, and hide comfortably in their shadow. Let's not do that. 
Let's not give ourselves uh, that break. Let's not mark ourselves as safe from this story. And the, and the problem is, and, and what's going to make some of us uncomfortable, is there are really no lines and no numbers attached to it. Right? There's no easy measurements for the story to let us know whether we're good or not, whether we're safe or we're unsafe, right? This is about the posture of a heart, right? Because there's nothing here that indicates how much savings is too much savings. How big of a barn is too big of a barn? What does a sinful-sized barn look like anyway? Can anyone answer that question? I don't know. We don't know much about his situation. Is everyone else having a great year too? Are there people starving around him or is everyone else doing okay? Like, we don't know much about it. Where is the line how much can I have? And we ask this because what we all want is to find that line and then stick our toes up against it, right? I'm happy to not go a dollar over, but let me know exactly how much I can keep. We're given no help in establishing the hard lines of measurements, right? And that can't be what this is really about. There is something in the nature and in the hearts of the questioner of Jesus and in the barn builder of the story that aren't right. There's an orientation or a posture that is poisoning the well. The problem is not on a spreadsheet, but in the soul of the person that acts in a certain way. Now, in the New Testament, um, in the language of the New Testament, there's actually a deification of this idolatry of greed. Um, it, it, is, it is said in, in the New Testament that as a master that you can serve instead of God, but not a master you can serve alongside, right? You can only serve one or the two. And the Greek term, uh, which can be obscured a lot in our English translation, uh, names this competing god, little g, god. And the name is Mammon. M-A-M-M-O-N, Mammon. And I like to think of it as the other side of a coin, uh, the other side of a term that I want to talk about tonight and with which you are probably more familiar and it requires really good enunciation, which I'm not always good at, to decipher between the two. But we have the God of Mammon, which is kind of the idolatrous nature of greed, that competing Lord for us. And then on the other side from Mammon, we have manna, that which is given freely from the hand of God to the people of God. And tonight, I, I know uh, if you've heard me preach much, you've heard me talk about manna before. You've heard me tie Christ's teaching back to the Exodus story a lot. Right, the people of Israel being rescued from Egyptian slavery cannot be overemphasized in Scripture, in, in my opinion. It is a through line throughout the Old and New Testament. It's a linchpin story. It's a, the, the biggest part of their religious history, and it's a guiding metaphor in Jesus' teaching. Right? God hears his own people, enslaved in Egypt, suffering for generations. And God miraculously gets those people, those slaves, out of Egypt. But maybe more importantly, when he takes them to the desert from Egypt, God gets Egypt out of them. God gets the slaves out of Egypt, but God also spends time in the desert getting Egypt out of the slaves. Now consider what it would have been like for them to go out into the desert to, in, in, to experience this brand new thing. Right? Consider what it means for this nation to be rescued from the only world they've ever known. I mean, yes, it was awful, but it was the only system they'd ever personally experienced or seen. And it, that system was based on oppression and violence and greed. And yes, it was terrible because it was on their backs that the system was being built. They wore the weight of that empire but it's also the only way they knew the world could work. It's the only way they'd ever seen it work. It was the water they swam in. 
It was awful. It was the devil, but it was the devil they knew. And so oftentimes I think what you see in the story of Israel is um, less that they dream about a new world as much as and more that they dream of a role reversal within Egypt. One day we'll be the ones on top. One, one day we'll be the ones telling people what to do and building our empire. Israel will always struggle to get Egypt out of their system. And this is why I believe God rescues Israel to the desert. Of course, the desert is normally the place you want to be rescued from. But here they are in the desert. They are removed from Egypt. They're freed as slaves, but they don't go directly into their own land. They don't go directly to run their own show. No, they are led in the desert for a generation. They're led miraculously by God's presence. They have no army, no land, no economy, no slaves, no masters. They are dependent and vulnerable, yet they are safe. They are in God's hands. They are taken care of. And only God Only God can be attributed to taking care of them. There's nothing else there. Their daily bread, which we pray for each week in this room, their daily bread, manna, shows up each morning, no matter if they made good efforts that week or poor efforts that week, no matter if they got up early or got up late, if they contributed a lot or they were a sorry neighbor that week, no matter what, manna shows up. God alone provides for them. There is no mammon to idolize. There is no greed to be had. And there's no greed to be had because you can only take what you need of the manna. The thing about this manna is if you take more than you can eat in one day and you try to gather some and hold it back so you maybe can provide for yourself tomorrow, it rots. It'll ruin your tent. It'll stink up your home. You can't hide extra manna. There is no setting what I might want ahead of what another person might need in the desert. There's no hoarding. There's no need for hoarding because this is not a world of scarcity. Things aren't going away tomorrow. We aren't unsure about what happens the next day. The next day, man is there again. God has got it. There's abundance. And in the desert, you are forced to live like that's actually true and not just give it lip service. And if you don't believe it's true, you're overtaken by the rot. This is part of how God makes God's people. This is how God gets the slaves out of Egypt and Egypt out of the slaves, by creating a new world for them to live and die within. God forms a people who trust in God's abundance, a people who don't fool themselves into thinking that they are independent or self-determined, a people who are vulnerable, dependent, and deeply cared for. Because the cure for slavery is not to claw your way to the top of the rotten system, there is, uh, the cure is to trade the system altogether. So that is why Jesus reacts the way he does to this question. Because this question posed to Jesus doesn't come from the right world. It's an Egypt question. It's a mammon question, not a manna question. God's world, he says, does not exist in the abundance of things where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, Right? Egypt is the kingdom of mammon, not manna, and we, we are manna people. So the question for us tonight is not answered in our bank statements, and it's not answered in our retirement accounts, however good, bad, or ugly they might be. And and right about now, ugly for all of us, right? It's not found in our bank statements or in our retirement accounts. They are relevant, to be sure, 
They say something about us, to be sure. But the question is much deeper than that. The question is whether we serve mammon or do we receive manna. The question is, which world do we live within? Are we so polluted by Egypt's greed that suddenly full barns become problems to solve instead of blessings to share? And that's the first sign that you're in the wrong world when what should be a blessing somehow becomes a problem. Do we live in that upside-down world where my possible future needs are more important than my neighbor's present suffering? Do we live in a world where my stuff is more important than my siblings? Are we allowing ourselves to live in the delusion of ultimately having control over our own destiny when we, in fact, are not God, and that is good news? Certainly, where we are in history where we live and what we have right now, we are certainly still living in Egypt. Although unlike uh, Israel, we are winning in that world. But the problem is that so often uh, Egypt is alive and well within us. And I think you could argue that everyone in Egypt, whether they're on the top or the bottom, everyone in Egypt is a slave of one variety or another. It's just some don't know it. Tonight the question is, are we manna people? Do we really believe in a God who loves and cares for and sustains us in our respective deserts? Do we really believe in God's abundance? Or are we a slave to Egypt's supposed scarcity? Can we be recklessly generous because God has been recklessly generous with us and will continue to be with us? Mammon is a devil, even if it is the devil with whom we are most familiar. But according to Jesus, there is a better world, one that doesn't require building larger barns because it already, already celebrates at the largest table. Let's pray.